Welcome to the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. <laughs> this is Paul. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. Your podcast of going where no man has gone before because nobody's ever done it before. This week we are speaking about future adventures. And the reason this topic has come up is because I am now running a campaign in Fringeworthy in the later it was called the uh, the late campaign, which is after they've discovered all kinds of great things and they've st- brought back lots of technology to Earth, and now things are pretty futuristic, or at least they're starting to become. And I noticed that I was having a hard time coming up with science fiction adventures that I thought were really science fiction. I mean, there was plenty of stuff where we were, you know, we were all geared up with all kinds of our, you know, our long range sensors, our robots, our drones, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And going to yet another primitive world or some other world which had a disaster, you know, which I guess is okay because, I mean, we all want to be the godlike creatures coming in and, 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 and granting the goodness to the people that we run into. I mean, that's kind of the part of playing these kinds of games is the hero aspect of it. But at the same time, I was like, well, yeah, but I want to be able to go to a world where it's really science fiction, where the end of our promo with Blick says, where you do this and this, and then you battle it out with lightsabers on the bridge of a starship. And I'm like... I've never done that. Why have I never done that? So that's why we have this topic. What's keeping us from doing those science fiction adventures? You know, and what can we do about it? Well, moving on, the next sci-fi plot is the singularity, which is where Technology has advanced so quickly or so profoundly that now humanity itself has changed from what we consider to be human. An analogous thing is culture also transforms radically because of this super advancement of technology that has occurred. I would see that as the perfect example, and it's a setting that I've bought extensively, from Scorched Earth Studios, Otherverse America, and they deal heavily with genetics and genetic manipulation, Where and there's a word, it's a speciation, that's what it is, where literally humans are starting to become a species of one, and you can become an anthropomorphic animal, or a heavy gravity, or a like. Genetics are to the point where you can have it done at a kiosk on a sidewalk, You tap in what you want, you hit it, it makes it there, it injects, and yeah, you may be feeling a little sick for maybe a week or so, but it's done. It's almost like going to a tattoo parlor. So yeah, that singularity genetics, I could see where humanity would change because custom gene modification. Ken McLeod, uh, Newton's weight. Singularity is just what, like one event that changes humanity, or it's either an event or a collection of events, or it's a development of technologies that causes such a transformative change that you, you look and say, "We're not like anything that's been in the past." Agriculture was a singularity for for primitive man. Oh yeah, totally changed man. It did. You know, I was just reading an article on old people, and old people is a singularity. When our society started taking care of their old people, it changed everything for us. And they don't know why. They don't know what sparked this or how it came about, whether it was a cultural thing, a diet thing or whatever. But about 30,000 years ago, (laughs) food surplus, humans started living longer. Okay, agriculture is when we finally decided to to sit down and actually do it. But we've been sort of doing it off and on for maybe 100,000 years. But this didn't happen in one place. This happened kind of across the globe. 
everywhere there were humans and Neanderthals as well because they, they, they found Neanderthals have started getting old people. So they're not really sure what, what brought this about. But at any rate, the important part of this is, is that once you start having citizens within your culture who are older than 30, they actually have better reasoning abilities because their prefrontal lobes are, are completely fully formed. They're making more logical decisions. They're more at peace with their life. They've come to accept things. They're better negotiators. They're better at dealing with other cultures. And when you're better at dealing with other cultures, it means you get to trade with them better, which means technology advances across the board for everybody. Good knowledge, you know, good skills are, are carried by these people, multiple skills, and they make better teachers than than the the younger ones because people in that time before thirty before the age of thirty they're doing their jobs they're hunting they're building stuff they're doing whatever it is that, that they do and the children are then left with the grandparents because at thirty that's when you can be a grandparent the children are being left with grandparents the children are getting a lot more education time so they're producing more intelligent adults so there's a singularity right there society went from being one way and almost overnight to being a completely different way. Werner Vinge also explored this in his uh, Peace War series, where basically they discover the way to bobble reality. Make a bubble, and you cut out a piece of reality, and it ceases to exist. And it ceases to exist in your memory. It was never there. Oh. And these bobbles would get stored in these little units. And they're talking about the various wars they had, just by making whole cities vanish. And no one knew they were there anymore. But they're stored in, the bo- they're stored in your little bobble machine that you can get them out again if you want to. <laughs> And it was just a weird series, but he had a series called Marooned in Real Time, which takes place after the uh, singularity. It lasts 10,000 years, yeah. It's a long singularity. Well, no, no, no. The, the, the story takes place over 10,000 years. The singularity actually happened before the story. And it's a murder mystery. They're trying to figure out who murdered somebody uh, several thousand years ago. Basically, they were left outside of the bobble. They were put in and then and, and, you know, brought back out again. And that person basically grew old and died. And they left a message. And they're trying to figure out who did it to this person. It's a murder mystery. The Produce Manifest by, I think it was Stackelford. It was a series of stories where they had found out a way of using biofeedback so that human beings could literally shape their bodies into whatever they wanted to. Now, there were some limitations. I mean, if you, whatever shape you took... There could be some big differences in your longevity as a result, usually to the detriment. If you wanted to be a bird, fine, but that would mean you'd last like five years because your body just was, it was just too much of a strain on the human body to maintain it. The transformative thing was, of course, is that now beauty is 15 minutes in the tank every day and you're beautiful or you're muscular or you're tall or you're short. So those kinds of choices are now totally as a result of a person. It takes almost no time to do it. So people actually make radical changes because they want to be different or they want to be in a group together and they want to use their forms of body to identify themselves. So you have the people who, for example, went out into outer space and they wanted to live out in the asteroid belt. They made themselves all very elongated, almost almost bird-like, but not birds like with wings, very thin. And, and that was their choice to make. It radically changed society. It also changed it in the sense that there was no sick people anymore because if you're sick, you fix it. You just use the biofeedback to get rid of the rickets, to get rid of whatever get rid of the cancer get rid of whatever it is that's wrong with you you just basically force your body to conform to the view you want it to have and that was the basis of the series and so that i thought that was majorly transforming of both humanity and their culture some people are still going to want to be beautiful but then everyone's going to say well yeah but you know i could be beautiful too so what else are you bringing to the table now yeah the, the geeks could finally get a rule Beauty is not enough. Power is still as important as ever. Intelligence is is just as important. And one of the things that happens during that in the the story is is that somebody finds some alien DNA and actually figures out a form that's an alien, that's that's better than us in every way. Wow. Who's going to make the decision now to change to be the alien? Are you going to give up your humanity utterly or not? See, that's the transformative aspect of it. About the problem with replicators. This is something they have in Star Trek. They have replicators. Well, you know, if you have replicators, 
why do you need to do any sort of work whatsoever? You just make a perfect copy of whatever it is that you that was put into the uh, replicator. There were some things that couldn't be replicated. But they could be transported. If they could be transported, they could be replicated. No, no. There were some things that could not be replicated, and therefore they could not be transported. There was gold-pressed latinum, but the trouble is they could transport it through the transporter, and the trans- replicator technology was based on transport te- Well, that's bad writing. I know. Yeah, yeah it's bad writing. And that, that's a unique- they call it lazy writing. Yeah. <laughs> they did say that there were a few things that could not be replicated. Replicator technology and the transport technology were just two different uses of the same technology. They got all bent out of shape going to one world where they had cloning, it, because they said that there was genetic drift or you know a dissolution or something like that, but you could use the transporter to make as many clones as you wanted to from the same template. Yeah, and there's Riker and Riker too walking around. Right, people have babies because they want to raise a, a baby because there's no other reason to have a baby. I would think that the transporter technology would be able to mix genomes and produce unique individuals just as easily as a baby could be produced by the normal methodology that we use. You have the ability to do that, then you can have as many copies of yourself as you want. Not only can you do that, you can have all your clones go in different directions, do different things, and then bring them all back together, merge their memories all back together, and create a a, a hybrid single individual who now has lived multiple lifetimes, is now in the same body, a fraction of the time that it would have taken to do otherwise. I see a very insane individual having that many memories crammed into one brain again. I'm, th- uh, I'm not going to get into <laughs> you're, you're looking at it negatively. I mean, we're assuming that the technology exists so that this could be done well, that you could choose. You know, I mean, obviously you don't want to keep the memory where you like stubbed your toe or had your appendix out. You'd be cherry picking those memories. Learning is nothing but memory. So if they learn to do the same task two different ways, those memories would conflict. You'd have to have one hell of an, a software algorithm running to make all these mesh together. That would be that would be something. Is it harder than one that creates as many copies of yourself as you want and dumps your brain in each copy? Okay, no. Is that any harder? No. No. <laughs> okay. No, no. But it, I'm just saying it would need to do that. It would need to have that level. One of the ones that I, I read like that, that's exactly what they had. You basically could make as many copies of yourself as you want, but normally you didn't. Mostly it was you traveling from world to world. That's how they would send you. They would scan you, break you down into components, and then recreate you on another world using what they called a, an array gate. So let's let's bring this back to Fringeworthy. So let's say the Fringeworthy run into this society, and they go back and they tell the Fringeworthy leadership, and the Fringeworthy leadership is like, really? We could take several different of the travelers, send them in different directions, and bring them back and form them into one super knowledgeable traveler. Right. That might be something that, like, a, a dark version of IDET, or like, uh, is it, what's the other organization out there that's competing with IDET? Coptics. Well, I could see the Coptics using that. No, no, no. No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, Trev. Not for long. Fortunately, they don't have the technology. No, no, no. But they would. No, but they run into this society. Sure. And then they either take it or manage to get them to give it to them or, or get them to do it for them. Yeah, I don't think that the uh, Chileans would because the ASA has a very strong Islamic aspect. And I think they would have a whole big problem with the whole, is your soul being cloned? Or are you just making soulless copies of yourself, abominations before the eyes of the Lord kind of thing happening? So, Trav, you're running an adventure with Coptics, right? Yeah, now and then. Yeah, I do. Not right now. All right, so the next time you run it, here's I'm, I'm giving you an adventure here, a really good one. So the guys are at IDET. They bring some guy in. They don't know that he's a Coptic agent, but that's what he is. And he is literally like the Jason Bourne or the or the Khan from Star Trek Into Darkness, right? He is a Coptic who is all these different warriors and spies and science, maybe a scientist and an analyst and you know all the, he's he's all these different people that has been combined into one person. He's like this one super dude who can do anything. They infiltrate IDET with him. Okay, I see that. First of all, is basically you're bringing a Melor, 
who has basically absorbed all these personalities and brought him in. It's just the fact that he's human. Right. He's going to pass all the anti-Miller tests because you you cut him, he's going to bleed red, even if you cut him deep. You know, we're talking about combining these people. Well, one of those people happened to be like an IDET person, so he has all their internal working knowledge. Not all of it, of course, but everything that that person knew. So they bring this guy in. He's like a super spy. Dude, this guy could hang out there for like a year or two gathering information. And then when the Coptics invade, this super agent, this Jason Bourne, has collected everything he needs to know. The party discover him and they get into you know a confrontation with him. This guy just proceeds to whip the crap out of all of them. Well, yeah, because he would have the fighting styles and knowledge and speed of all these different people. Right. My thing is, and, and John may be bringing this point up, I'm not sure, let me know. The Coptics, we've all deduced that they are at a Korean War level of tech. So beginning PL5 in the D20 parlance, Paul figured that out that they were just post-World War II. They would have no idea how to run a device like that, because that would have to be a PL9 device. So that's four and a half tech levels beyond them. No, they, they, pay, these, they pay these guys to do it for them. If the people who would have and maintain this technology, what would they want from the Coptics that they couldn't do because they have technology to people like... I'm, I'm just not seeing this to, to, to click here. Uh, they just might want to share it with anybody that comes into their world. And then realize that, oh dear God, we've made a huge mistake because these are evil people. Yeah. Or they never do realize it. Or they don't care. Did you write in the Coptics and figure out how to like factory farm fringeworthy people, and that was the real Coptic threat, or did you change that? Because one of those things that like that prevents a lot of action on the paths is there's a limited number of fringeworthy, but the faction that figures out how to factory farm fringeworthy and put a thousand fringeworthy explorers on the fringe path per day is rapidly going to carve an empire, regardless of what everybody else feels about it. Not sure of that yet. I did not see that in advance. And then it, it would not really matter if the Coptics are 1950s technology or not. If they spam a thousand guys through the portal on you all of a sudden, you know, even though they're, they're chucking arrows or throwing spears or they're using primitive submachine guns, that's a thousand people in your face right now. Well, yeah, even if you have modern-day technology, if I were to be armed with two AK-47s, I'm still going to face with, if I've got a hundred guys, I'm outnumbered, and ammo is not infinite. There is that problem. That was my problem with the, you have the super-born agent. Now, in the movies, yeah, he would cream your team, but they're player characters. They'll easily kill him. No, not, no, not necessarily. There's no such thing as, as an invulnerable NPC, unless you cheat. Unless you cheat. Wait a minute. <laughs> Not necessarily. Uh, what system are we talking about? Savage Worlds. Okay, what level are your players? Let's say they're second. Levels don't count in Savage World. No, it doesn't. I can make a character first level with, with Jilly 12. And that's the only... And there are edges that are not available to you that would be available to our born agent. What if he's legendary? Have you ever taken a regular character, even three or four of them, against a legendary character? They get their butts handed to him. A legendary Savage World character kicks the bejesus out of everything. That would be like in D20, a, a level 20 character going up against even five or six level one characters. Yeah, it's And having said that, we both have played enough savage roles to see the person who says, I'm going to shoot them, and they roll, and they get a raise. Oh, I get three dice, and they roll, and they all come up sixes. They roll again, two come up sixes, and they just keep on going until finally they rolled 48 points of damage on the guy. John, I've actually never seen that happen. I've seen a lot of damage done. I've seen some person get up to 32 points. Okay, and then he spends a Benny and soaks it. No, you can't, because every four points is a wound. Yeah. If you're legendary, you're going to have stats that are really high, too, and you're going to be able to soak stuff. And since he's the primary NPC, he's going to be a hero also. He's going to get a Benny for every player plus his own Bennies. And he's a villain. He only gets two Bennies plus the GM's Bennies. And if I've been spending, like, he may only have two Bennies. 
No, he's a villain. So he just picks up an innocent bystander, puts them between him and your shot, and lets the innocent bystander do the soak for him. Uh, that's be quite... John. We're, we're getting into rules. John. So we're getting into rules. Yes. You're geeking out here. You're taking the awesome out of this. <laughs> I know, but, you know, I mean, of well, course, look, I would... But you got to remember, look. I mean, I do sometimes... Well, I Listen, he's the born-level guy, so you're going to assume that he has this fiat over the characters because the story moves at the speed of plot that when they discover him, well, he's like, oh, well, yeah, but I was prepared for that, you see, because he can, being that you're the game master, you make stuff happen. That's when the party finds out that this guy has set them up and Idet thinks that they're all Mellers because he planted information that they didn't know about. So he uses that distraction to get away. Yeah. Well, that's where I, I would say I would use actually something from from Triple uh, Ace Games. It's called the Bad Guy Benny. Yeah. Basically, you can spend the Bad Guy Benny and say he escapes. Yeah, that's kind. Of, that's a little bit of a cop out, in my opinion. It's okay. No, it's it's totally he's totally right, Peter. It's it's fine. You you set this guy up to basically beat Idet's butt, so that now they have someone to to chase after as they gain legendary levels. Yes. When the final fight happens, they'll have parity. It's fine. It's what's supposed to happen. I'm gonna go back to the how he got to be made. It's not an alien race. It doesn't have to be an alien race. It doesn't even have to be a society at all. The Coptics discover Commonwealth technology, being that it's so advanced, they made it easy to use. It's like, oh, we stick this person in that pod, and that person in that pod, and that person in that pod, and then this person in this other pod over here, you flip this switch, and it does it. The Commonwealth would have made what they said in Incursion, idiot-proof technology. Yeah, right, and, exactly. And so, okay, yeah, the cop. See, that would be another game breaker there. I mean, you'd have to, re- that's the, we're getting back into what type of technology do you want to release into your game? Sure. And, and maybe we should segue into that, the effects of all this. Well, a- again, that's one reason why we said this thing is probably going to work primarily in the late campaign, yeah. where you're not afraid to bring technology back to Earth because you're already in a science fiction setting there. A, a cyberpunk version of this are brain implants. Now, they could be entirely biological. You're sort of basically a piece of brain that has the, has the skills you need into your brain, and everyone's happy, uh, happy hunky-dory, you know, and there you go. And you actually now have a whole new skill at, at, at some level. Either a D20 or Savage Worlds or whatever system you're using, you got to have some way to pay for that. The Matrix upload. Yeah. Yeah, basically skill chips, I think they call them. Yeah. 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 In game rules, okay. Either everyone gets gets a, a free brain chip and therefore you're completely balanced out, don't worry about it, or you're going to have to pay for it somehow in game terms. You know, uh, you know either you, you skip an advance or, or you or something, or you need so many experience points for it to permanently seat in your brain or something like that, you know. In Cyberpunk, if I remember correctly, you could only use one skill at a time. So if you put in a brain chip to fly a helicopter to use that slot for computer hacking, you had to lose the ability to fly helicopters and gain the ability for hacking. Yeah, and then it wasn't tremendously high. It was a little bit better than minimum, but not by much. Unless you do something like multiple brain ports where you can plug more than one in and have them all at a time. And I mean, you still switch them out, but you could still decide, well, I'm going to keep uh, martial arts and helicopter piloting and gunplay well, I don't need to use guns right now. I need to know uh, hacking. Okay, we'll take out the gunplay and put in hacking. Usually those are built into the game. I'm talking technology later on that, yeah, okay, so your players come across a machine that says, oh, yes, you need skills? We'll give it to you. The electronic educator. We're talking permanent skill increases, not just temporary ones. That's where you lose control of your game. What about when we talked about another thing that you could do? You don't even have to do all that. Let's say you don't want to introduce something that the, the characters have constant access to, but you want to provide it to them on a limited basis. Remember, we were talking about memory crystals, the, the Tremelo memory crystals. What if there was a version of those that gave you skills? Like for a temporary time. It's like, well, I pull out this one. This is my computer hacking uh, memory crystal. You activate it, and for a short period of time, you have that skill. And personality. And, yeah, and we talked about that. You get a little bit of a personality that comes with it that affects you. It's like, yeah, I could do the hacking, but it makes me really angry. Well, especially if that skill came from an alien. Right. 
You're sticking an alien mindset into your brain. It's like, why don't you want to use the hacking thing? Why do you always avoid using that? I mean, you could pull that out and use it anytime you want. It's like, I don't have enough digits when I do it, though. <laughs> right. uh, Makes me. I don't mind using it, but I always have this craving for slugs. Right, yeah. And you don't want to know what body part I have to also try to use to, you know, type correctly. Yeah. And I have to scratch a tail that I don't have. <laughs> Prehensile tail itches. I have to shave my whole body afterwards. And I want a bowl of pistachio and cockroach ice cream. Yeah, hold the larvae. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I liked it. <laughs> now it's beginning to sound like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> when it wore off, I had to take a shower. Six of them. It's the scene like Ace, and Ace Ventura. Sure, yeah, right. Anyway, moving on from the singularity, because obviously we're talking about some transformations here that some of our listeners might get a little uncomfortable about. Right, right. Yeah, let's move. The last one I have is as SF plots is colonization. And there's it's split into two different parts. One is the trip itself. And the second one is taming the new world and being transformed by it on the trip part if you're doing a Fringeworthy adventure and it has to do with colonization and you're basically on some kind of a colony ship and therefore they're taking the slow boat to uh, Alpha Centauri and it's literally going to take decades, if not centuries to get there. So in sci-fi parlance, you mean a generation ship? Because of their technology, they may live long enough. But the point is, is that you're now on a ship where you're stuck on that ship. You're not going anywhere on this ship. These people that are there, they're it. And what wasn't a problem the first 10 years, <laughs> 20 years later, you're sharpening up something in your closet to express your displeasure about. Maybe you don't think that the captain should be in charge of the ship anymore. Maybe you think that there should be a collective uh, a council by this scientist because this is a scientific mission. Yeah, see, this is where we've talked about science fiction is how science and technology affect the human condition. A colony ship, generation ship type campaign would be extensive role playing because of the fact, what are you going to be fighting except for each other? Yeah. Unless you're going to be saying NPC, something happens where a lot of NPCs are starting to fight you. This is going to be heavy role playing and character interaction. Yeah, it's all about the human heart and conflict with itself. Yes. Good novel for this. It's called Learning the World, a generation ship in a post singularity universe. There's a crew of like 20 on board. They're these people who live for hundreds of years, they're the only crew needed. The rest of the crew are all uh, embryos. We figure they're going to be within, say, 20 years of arriving at the target. That's when they start hatching the babies and start raising the kids and getting ready for them to debark at the new colony. A massive influx of children probably are sired by one of the one of the 20 of the crew. There's the novel Mayflies, and I don't remember the author. It's a generation ship which goes off course. The pilot uh, is a human brain, though nobody knows that. And it was originally this guy who had committed a crime, and so they sentenced him to death and put his brain in the ship. But he, had, after like 100 years, wakes up. He has to deal with his own situation and how he feels about having these people now under his control that he could do stuff to in response to his unhappiness about being stuck as the brain of this gigantic uh, colony ship. This was a true science fiction setting because of that, and also because these people were all living in a, in a world where things had to be constantly recycled, and they went through all kinds of political changes and religious changes o over time because they didn't have immortality. He was the only one who had immortality because he was a, a brain inside of a medium of some kind. They just grew and died the normal way. They weren't supposed to be in there more than about a generation, but of course, since the ship kind of went wacky, it, it actually took him forever to figure out how to access the, dro sh the ship's drive. It is shut down, and he spends most of the book just trying to figure out how to get access 
control of the ship again because once it realized that his, he was waking up, it said, oh, brain, you know, computer system, you know, wrong, shut out computer system. And <laughs> so that's the premise of the whole thing while wow, it takes so long. I think it's a good example of a colony type thing where they have to get there. And the story is literally all about them getting there. Have you ever seen the movie Pandorum? Yes. They wind up getting stuck in hypersleep for too long. Something happens. I can't remember. The ship goes off course or something. The crew winds up going crazy because they've been in hyperspace for so long. But the ones who have woken up have been mutating over the, the long time that they've been in hyperspace. They certainly showed how people could change, uh, devolve or evolve as a result of, of this strange condition that they were in of hypersleep. Yeah. Take the premise of the movie Outland. Let's say it's a colony ship. And the same kind of thing is going on. You know, I mean, you got the inner workings of the colony ship, people are working it. Maybe they, they don't have cyber sleep. It's going to take a hundred years to get there. Well, in that time, you know, you got these guys uh, start making, figuring out how to make drugs and stuff. And then you get like a drug ring, and, and then the drug is killing people, but they don't, you know, the guys who are in charge don't care because. They're capitalizing off of it. And then, you know, your party is the the lone heroes who, you know, try and save the colony from these drug dealers. Even the people who don't want to take drugs are being forced to take the drugs. This would be a big colony ship. This this would only work if you're talking like a huge, like, uh, you know, a city in space. In Arizona, they got to stop and grab a comet just to replace essentials. Sure, yeah, yeah. And these guys need to work like 24 hours a day. So these drugs allow them to be awake. 24 hours a day. For whatever reason, let's say they can't capture the comet, they have to ride alongside of it, but the longer they're riding alongside of it, the more off course they go. So they have to work 24 hours a day for, you know, a couple weeks to make sure they mine everything they can, and then they get off of it and go back on course. So that would say, like, maybe they do it with asteroids as well. They're looking for volatiles will eventually leak out of the system, so you need to replace them every so often. Right. Maybe you got a crew that, that runs a huge ram. Like on the front of this ship, there's a big giant collector ram. It's collecting hydrogen and stuff like that. Maybe these guys work that, and that's 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 what they do. You know, maybe that's that's their mining. They're they're mining space. And they're the ones that had their gene- genetics changed to copper because if they work out there with iron in their blood. The magnetic ram would just rip it right, right out of them. <laughs> Ow. Maybe they find that. Since they've been genetically modified, they're dealing with complications. You know, maybe they're in pain a lot. So that's where this drug comes in. They run out of breath a lot because copper's not as good. Perhaps, you know, th- there's your whole storyline that you could, you know, go with it. Right. I read a variation of the of the Generation Ship. It was a 70s paperback novel, only like 200 pages, called Starship. It was a Generation Ship that was returning to Earth and... It had dropped off the colonists, and the ship was going back to Earth to be reused. And it had tanked up on water for the return trip because they were breaking down water for the hydrogen and the oxygen. And in the process, it had onboarded an alien protein that changed the population. And you don't find this out till about three-quarters of the way from the book because the book starts with a savage who is wearing a loincloth of his spear hunting through a jungle. Hmm. And this alien protein has inf- infiltrated the DNA of all the Terran life, and it has accelerated people to 20 times their natural speed and, and shortened their, their lifespan by 20 times. Wow. Well, because they're basically burning themselves out being that fast. The twitch fibers being that animated yeah your metabolism would have to be just through the roof to constantly supply that much energy to move that fast it was a two generation trip to go to the planet and it is now back at earth and it's 20 something generations oh okay with no recollection that it's even a starship they're on <laughs> so like a dark- or their origin wow right so they there are humans that are infiltrating the ship to figure out what's wrong and they call the the, the people left on board, the dizzies, because they move at dizzying speed. Okay. And they don't realize the humans on board are r- actual humans, and they just think of them as the slow, stupid ones. Hmm. Ah. And it was a really fascinating book. Hmm. It had broken into tribes by decks, and that the this protein had infiltrated the hydroponics system. So the hydroponics system had exploded throughout the whole ship, turning the interior of a starship into a jungle. 
In mm. the title of the book is Starship. And it's a seventies pulp, but I, I I can't locate it, but I so I can't remember the author. I want to say it's one of Frederick Pohl's. Mm, could be. Of course, it's also Heinlein's Orphan Star, which yeah, it's sort of it's it's sort of they want to set the theme for most of the most of these stories. That's again another one where it's on a starship. It's a medieval society, and only the fact that they speed stuff into the matter energy converge to keep the ship going is the only really science fiction part of it. It James P. Hogan's um, this voyage from yesteryear where the first ship was a ro- automatic robotic probe with just loaded up with embryos. And they basically, the children are raised uh, by robots and they're raised in a totally egalitarian society. They have the ultimate communist paradise, <laughs> you know, everything according to your needs. Then the, the bad old humans show up from earth and that's most of the story right there. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to the other one, which was taming the new world and being transformed by it. Oh, seed chips. Colonizing the world. So they have high tech, but they're also up against really tremendous challenges. So you get to see all the really cool high tech stuff going. And also, it's not boring. It's something just coming in and says, okay, let's, you know, let's blow up this, blow up that. They have to deal with all these other things. I dropped a book that's similar to that into the chat window. It was Blue Mars by Stanley Robinson. Right. Where it's generationally through three novels where they're terraforming Mars, turning it from a red desert into a blue-green world. They never really get the the atmosphere up there, but towards the end, people can walk around without a spacesuit. They just have a little oxygen booster. When you're talking about taming the world, you're, part of it is dealing with the local fauna and flora. Do you actually come in and go Uber Alleys and take out the local fauna and flora and replace it with Terran? Or do you learn to live with the local wildlife? The best story I've ever read on this regard that actually I think could, could work on the long term, it was actually a short story. The premise of the story was this guy who was kind of a Walter Minnie type guy, he always had a dream of being an explorer. He goes into the colonization office and thinking that, oh, I'm just a fool for doing this. I'll just go in there and they'll laugh at me because here's the picture of Biff's spaceman with the bulging muscles and the, and the beautiful hair and the whole thing like that. And they come in and he says, and he says oh, yeah, you're perfect for us. And he's like, what? What are you talking about? He says, oh, yeah. You see, he says, we need a guy like you to go out and be our first person on a world because you see this guy up here you see in the poster a a bug that would kill you he will only get a cold okay he can like build entire city with like a flint and a triangle for doing the calculations he's your uber man but that's not who we want to put on these worlds we want to put everyday people so we want someone who's worse as a survivor than they are we want you. So they send him out to the world, and he has his robot along with him. And the robot is very helpful, and everything is going fine, except that he starts actually learning how to do things. He starts going and you know becoming a good fire builder, a good hunter, and things like that. And all of a sudden, he notices that the robot is not helping anymore. The robot is breaking things. The robot is accidentally hurting him and he suddenly realizes that this robot's trying to keep me at the same level as I was before. If I'm not careful, this robot's going to try to kill me because he's getting too good of a colonist. The robot doesn't know to stop. He keeps trying to keep him down. So imagine a world in which you have a, a group of people, but a small group of people, and robots, they have their own robot generation plant, and they come there and this same thing happens. All of a sudden, the robots declare war on the colonists. And the colonists don't understand why. And the robots are trying to destroy them right and left. And the colonists are using the technology they have, the advanced technology, to fight the robots. And you basically have Terminator. So the fringe where they come through, and maybe they can figure out what's going on. That's the, you know, the robots are attacking. And you have this culture now that's lived there for a couple hundred years, still at war with these robot marauders they're doing everything they can to wipe out every settlement that they establish and killing off too many people so because surely you know like one out of three 
babies would die, right? So let's just mow through town and start doing you know first century baby pruning. It's a horrendous situation that I could easily see happen and be experienced by a fringeworthy team. Now you have to have at least one out the players to get it. So there's the robot stamping around, then there's the guy who's feeble minded, not too good, and he stops and starts helping him. Yeah, exactly. That would be what they'd have to see. They have to see how the robot seems to really pal around with the, the town idiot. Yeah. The town idiot's never hurt hurt by this thing. Why is that? Yeah. So I got another one for you. <clears throat> this goes back to 2006. Uh, a guy named S.M. Sterling may have heard of him. He wrote a book called The Sky People. And the first one, The Sky People, is where they go to Venus. It's an alternate Earth, so this works good for Fringeworthy. Basically, Venus is a habitable world, and so is Mars. And and Venus turns out to be a um, a, like a, a dinosaur-type planet. And it, it goes – it's great for Savage Worlds because it plays back into that whole like uh, dino pulp. Uh, you know, we go to another world and there's dinosaurs there, and it, but it's just like Earth, yeah. Like Dinosaur Planet from Goodman Games, yeah. yeah. It it's really good book. It's a fantastic book, and it, it this they build a colony there, so this fits into that whole colony thing. It's a different way to approach um, having a colony. They they only had to travel to Venus, which is it's a good distance, but uh, in this reality, Venus is a livable planet. It's a cool book, and it would be uh, it would be a good way to to do a colony on another world, but do it really neat. As Bruce would say, it would definitely bring the awesome. And they have di- and they use dinosaurs for vehicles because you know what they work. Yeah, because they, because they have such a simple ner- nervous system, they're able to tap into it and send them basic controls. Okay. It's neat. It's it's a very neat book. Let's move on finally to tech. Okay, so what is the tech that we need to have in our science fiction stories to make them science fiction? I need laser guns. Laser guns. You end up with two kinds of tech in science fiction stories. You get a dressed-up tech where you have a science fiction-y looking future variation of something you see every day or you've seen on Earth. Star Wars analog, X-Wing fighters always flew through space just like World War II fighter planes. Mm -hmm. Or you have the other version where you have tech where it's so advanced that humans don't even understand the science on how it was built and how it operates. If that's what it takes to make your story awesome, then I say that it's figured out. Or it just works. You don't care. Basically, you hand wave and say it works. It doesn't mean you have to put your brain in neutral. I mean, there's plenty of theories about how this could happen, that it could work. But you're right, John. (laughs) I was going to say, all that steampunk stuff that you love so much won't work. (laughs) (laughs) I I love the steampunk stuff, but every time I say, what's the power source for this? There's never an answer. Ether. Ether, Bruce. Bruce, ether. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's right. That's right. But the point is that, yes, you you want energy weapons. Yes. And that's an FTL-24 ton of energy weapons in there. They've got blasters. They've got masers. They've got yeah. beam weapons. And they have slug throwers. And Well, they have slug throwers, but th- slug throwers by themselves are not that interesting. You've got to do stuff to them to make them interesting as slug throwers. John Scalia's Old Man series, their weapons are basically a block of nanites. You get, put a setting on it, it basically says, this is what my weapon is. It's going to fire flechettes, or it's going to fire slugs. Oh, I'm sorry, it's a grenade launcher now. See, that's cool. I like that. That's neat. Dial it up. It's the same thing with the um, Dread. He has the ability to dial what kind of ammo he wants to come out of his gun. There's there's other things, too. I mean, like, lightsabers don't work. The, the, the whole concept of the lightsaber is ridiculous, but it's fun. So, I mean, like, if we're going to do sci-fi, I'm, unless we're going to do, like, really hard sci-fi, I, I want a lightsaber. Or there's that weapon that's a Zarg head in, in Fifth Element. Or, or Zorg. Zorg head in, in there. Uh, and I'm finding it on the five dumbest weapons ever made in science fiction. I think that gun makes perfect sense, okay? It knows where it's supposed to go. The ZF-1. <laughs> yeah, it, it it goes around you because it knows where its target is. I love that thing. There's nothing wrong <laughs> with that gun. It actually makes a lot more sense if you use something that's called a utility fog, 
But hey, okay, we don't want to get into that uh, because that's a little too techy. You know, so, so we already know what all the sci-fi stuff is. We know what the sci-fi weapons and the crazy stuff is. Let's talk about what it does to your campaign. So, okay, so let's say we say lightsabers are okay. Well, what does that mean? You know, a guy gets to carry around a little thing like looks like a flashlight. To most people, wouldn't even know what it is. And he's got this thing that can cut through just about anything, and he can just whip it out. It seems to have nearly unlimited energy, so he can use it almost as much as he wants. No. Yeah, he has to recharge it every so often. Well, right. Fortunately, Fringeworthy has that built-in limiter. What works on one node may not necessarily work on another right. node because the limitations right. or the or the realities of that universe don't carry over. That's clearly science magic. And also the fact that you can't take it from world to world because of the dampening field. I mean, you're going to be using it in that world and have to leave it behind or unless you get schematics to take back to Earth Prime. And besides, it'll be discharged when you enter the platform, when you cross into the platforms. Unless it's powered by Psy. Yeah. In which case, it'll work most anywhere. Because generally speaking, Psy works everywhere. And and if you really want to, like, do something crazy, you could say, uh, in, in, you know, in Star Wars, it's a crystal they put in there, right? Well, maybe it's a crystal that they put in there. Well, it's a crystal that it's no, no. focused... Oh, oh. Uh, it's a crystal. The orange crystal? In there. Yeah, maybe it runs off an orange crystal. Then it works anywhere in any fringe-worthy world. That's just kind of a neat twist that you could throw on that. So surely there's going to be people out there who are harvesting some of this Tamelaran tech and repurposing it. Yeah, right. If you go to the Star Wars universe and you decide to go with the uh, prequel series, hey, give me a shot of midichlorians. Right. They work anywhere. Apparently. The Force may not work outside of that universe. So you got to live in midichlorians, but you step on another node, and there's no Force for midichlorians to... Then they start consuming you. (laughs) I mean, there's got to be some flying cars or jetpacks or things like that. The fuel for that flying car may not be available in that other world. Nah, man, it it has a fusion thing on the back of it. You pour garbage into it, and it can time travel. Come on. You know, and one of the coolest things I ever saw was in a comic book. It literally was this slab. And this girl, she was a police officer. She would call this slab and come flying out of nowhere. And she'd just jump on it. She would surf it through the city like the Silver Surfer. It was totally cool. You know what your car has? You, you want flying cars? You know how you do it? You just go to Hardwired Hinterland. Hardware Hinterland, get some lightning crystals. Done. <laughs> which oh, wow. May, which may or may not work yeah. elsewhere. But yeah. No, I'm convinced they will. I'm convinced that's fringe technology. If you're the GM, you're going to plot out how this device works. You're going to give it some benefits, and you're going to give it some detractors or some limitations sure. so that it doesn't escape your control. Right. You want it to be fun. I mean, you're making this world, therefore you should be able to anticipate some of the effects of the technology. You run, you run into some old Commonwealth technology they were building to, to fight on the platforms. Organic power armor. John, remember the discussion you and I had about giving Wikipedia to the Vic- Victorians? And I told you, that is letting the cat out of the bag. They don't need you anymore. Okay, so what else? Well, like I said, like I said, organic power armor. It works on the fringe paths. But its downside is you got to feed it. And if you don't feed it, it goes for the nearest protein source. You. Yeah. <laughs> so your suit slides off its venom from the Spider-Man? It won't eat your brain. It'll leave your brain alone. You know, but then you just become power armor at that point. I can't come into work today. My power armor's eating me. My power armor's left the house and it's ate the neighbor's cat. Like, what do you feed that thing, blondes? <laughs> Look at that psychotic symbiote from the Spider-Man universe. I gotta chase down my power again. Yeah. Or it could be that the thing doesn't eat protein. What it really needs is, is sucrose. What are you eating all the ice cream for? It's not for me. It's for the suit. Feed my suit. Yeah. I gotta feed my boxer shorts here. <laughs> yeah. They're a little too tight right now. They've contracted because they're hungry. Yeah. <laughs> That's one limiter. Another limiter is is that let's say you find some really cool technology in another world and you're like, oh, great, I'm going to take this into you know different worlds. Well, now you've got something that nobody else has, so what's going to happen? Everybody wants it. You can whip out your lightsaber, right? But you can't. You can't just whip your lightsaber out wherever you go. There are laws against that, young man. 
There's metaphors for that we don't want to get into. But in all reality, you pull out a lightsaber on a you know a lesser world, and eventually pump, somebody's going to knock you in the head and take that thing. you got to sleep sometime. Ask anyone who's ever practiced with a sword. If you've got a lightsaber and you're not a Jedi, you should be missing a few fingers. Yeah, there, well, there's that. I bashed myself in the back of the head, hit myself in the back of the leg. But we're, we're talking about a science fiction story, so, of course, they got, you know, places to graft those fingers back on, right? They've got body banks full of uh, happy body parts floating around waiting for you to try out different things. Let's just imagine every French raid team is equipped with a dock box. That's what's going on in my campaign right now. They went to an expo world, and they ran in some guys that were, like, sleeping there. They, you know, and they said, got anything to trade? And they said, yeah, we got the Meller Cure. And they said, really? What would you like for that? And they thought about it. They said, we would like the ability to produce as many of these dock boxes as possible. And he said, fine, meet Fred. Fred and Fred's mate, they will produce as many offspring, and each one of them will, will be popping out dock boxes on a regular basis. How about that? They're like, oh, cool. And they, and they took Fred and his mate home. Every team has a dock box. I can say there's another limitation out there we're forgetting that is that that creates its own plot, which is you've got a tech, you have a competing anti-tech. So you have a Tamelaran device and you're being stalked by somebody who wants to destroy that Tamelaran device with a Commonwealth device. Can you give an example of that? You've got organic power armor. Somebody else has the uh, a viral bomb that kills that organic power armor. Because there was a war, you know. The Commonwealth worlds fought each other as well as fought the Melon. Yeah. yeah. Especially if the power armor, after a period of time, gains its own sentience and tries to destroy the world. <laughs> Dude, we'll go back to Trav's favorite, running into the Coptics. I mean, they will take your stuff. Oh, yeah. And I've already used in my meta campaign, I made negative 125 prime, basically early if invasion Robotech, where they're starting to harvest protoculture when they're not having to evade the invid. They have a little bit of robotechnology, just enough to, to give them an edge. And yeah, there are uh, various player character teams are going, uh, no. Problem is, they know that they go there, they're also going to have to sit there and do hit and run guerrilla warfare because the Invid run the planet. There's a little bit of the REF stuff there after the first invasion, but as I said, you're having to deal with the Invid. And. I haven't had to stat them yet because it's the whole thing. If you can stat it, you can kill it. It's the threat of these big crab creatures that you know that your IDET weapons are going to go bouncing off of. So they know, okay, the Coptics, they barely have this protoculture. They don't have a lot of it. Okay, we just take out this one thing and we're fine. It's really kind of funny because Star Wars pretty much has everything that we're talking about here. We got robots. We have cyborgs and magic. Clones and <laughs> seven bigger fish. There we go. <laughs> we haven't really talked about that. I mean, we we got the robots that were supposedly originally in the Matrix. If you look at the Animatrix, you know they talked about the original robots that literally look like robots that you'd expect. Yeah, the bulky bodies, and then ultimately at the end they turned into spider weird looking dudes. Of course, all of Asimov with his robots, they were some of them were human form, but a lot of them weren't. Robbie the robot, most of the positronic stories, the robots did not look human. Yeah, we need lots and lots of robots, I think, in the uh, in our science fiction story. Sadly, but in French, it means you also have lots and lots of handcarts, because once they step onto the platforms, they make, and that's it, you know. Right, unless, of course, the brain inside the robot is an organic matrix, that can sustain itself until you go someplace where the body can boot back up. Or does the filter look at it and go, oh, it's a positonic brain. We can't turn that off and lets it run. That's a GM decision there. What I'm just saying is that they're supposed to be fully robotic, uh, artificial, not human. But we said that the filter makes decisions that don't kill the it sentient creature. When you know they're sentient, because if they're not fringe-worthy, they won't go through the portal. Right, but they it won't drop the the, uh, the negation of electricity just because it, you need it to survive. It may decide not to acknowledge you and not let you through because it'll kill you if it does. 
Well, there is that. I was say because what does it do when it's a sentient robot? Because we said it, it will go through great, you know, changes not to kill the sentient that passes through the portal. If you're on the robot world where nothing but robots, and you find a fringeworthy robot, he's fringeworthy. That means he can go through the portal. What do you do? I mean, do you do you tell him it's a death sentence for him? Or what? I mean, if he if the crystal lights you put on his hood or on his hand on his claws or whatever, and it lights up for him, he's fringe worthy, and he's sentient. Does he go through the dang portal or not? And does he survive? Does he just shut down and then reboot when he gets somewhere else? I mean, the Tamellers themselves have lots of robots, and every single one of them goes dead when it goes on to the fringe pass, including the the Queller, and those are organic. Yeah. In fact, they, they go better than that. They disassemble. The GM should do what he wants to do or what she wants to do. But the general statement is, is that the, the French Path is not a kind and friendly place to robots. No, but, but we're not only talking about Frenchworthy here, are we? I mean, are, are we just talking about Frenchworthy? Primarily, we were talking about people going to science fiction worlds. You talk about any other game you want to. I mean, you can have robots in the Bureau 13 game. Well, the only reason I say this is because we, we also have a couple of the games that that are tri-tac that would fit in the same kind of feel as, as Fringeworthy as a part as as far as bringing technology into it. Incursion, Incursion Two, yeah. You know what I was thinking? I was thinking Hardwire Hinterland. Yeah. Yep. And I was also thinking Weird Zone. Yep. Weird Zone, it would work, and that's actually supposed to be a subsystem of the Fringe Pass. I mean, the only reason electricity doesn't work in Weird Zone is that you didn't bring any gas for your generator. Well, that's what I'm saying. Imagine your your characters in in Weird Zone get a hold of some laser rifles or something, you know? I mean, like, how's that going to affect their campaign and what they can do? What if they get a robot? I'm fine with it. Yeah, a robot is powered off a small amount of antimatter. As long as you don't crack that manic bubble, he's good for a thousand years before he runs out of energy. Don't forget that all the stuff that we've been talking about, if you're playing Weird Zone or, or, or Hardwired Hinterland, you don't fall under those trappings of the Fringeworthy. But we were talking about why people don't play science fiction adventures in Fringeworthy. That was the premise for this. So there was the Fringeworthy on the end of that. Okay. Well, and this is for the GMs out there. If you do have a character who wants to play a sentient robot and he wants to be able to go out on the uh, and with no organics and he wants to go to the platform, you can always sit there and say, okay, the platform pills you. What do you mean? You step through, and now there's this little small pill with a little note uh, pill, and you, basically it's you until you go to the next part, platform. You throw it through, boop, and you come back again. Uh-huh. Put you into a holding cell, so to speak. Here's your light B. Until we get some place where you can, actually can power it up again, you're not, you, we won't be able to see you until we actually put it back through a portal, and then bang, it, re, it re, reconstitutes you back into your normal self. Yeah, but it's just as easy to say that you just reboot. They put you in a hand cart, like you said, roll you to the next portal, toss you through, let the sun hit you, bing, 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 you wake up because you're, you've got you know, regenerative power supplies. Yeah, yeah. Remember we talked about having bio batteries because there's the, the electrocyte cells that are similar to the electric eel? Yeah, they're based on algae. The battery in him could be this like biological goo that you need to feed. Let's go back to sucrose. you got to feed it sucrose every once in a while. But he can move around on the French Pass because his electricity comes from a biological source just like a human being's. Yeah, but no, Bruce and I have already discussed this. The entire thing has to be biotech because if you have an organic power source in an electrical-based robot, and still, no, the robot, and until it can get off the French Pass. Yeah, or you're going to have a robot that's blind because its eyes are electronic. Uh, thank you, Trav, for, for not me not having to be the one poo-pooing it. <laughs> I remember you and I discussed that because I asked you, hey, what about a protoculture cell putting it into a fringe-worthy vehicle? Well, still, it runs electric. So, yeah. Okay. As soon as you go through, it'll be fine. Okay? I mean, as soon as you know the, the magnetic domains come back to the parts that are metallic— then bang, you know, the power will flow and you can boot back up. So the robot could live, you just have to wheel him to the next stop. Yeah, it's, it's basically going to go into a coma. Just like, you know, you might have a, a supernatural creature that would go into a coma every time that it, it goes onto the fringe pass because, you know, it's not a happy place for it. Okay. There is what I call the Playtex effect. You got 18 hours. It's still 
manifests. It's got its own private little field until you can get another friendly note. Bruce, you did this. What did you do with the Dalek? How did you handle that again? The Dalek itself is an organic creature. Right. It sat inside his travel machine. Its travel machine doesn't actually provide life support to it. Okay. It protects it from all the bad stuff that was in the world it was from. It moves by telekinesis, and it still has that in its organic form. So it was able to roll itself along, but it had no access to anything else that, that would normally – you couldn't shoot anybody. And as soon as it went through a world, it was able to reboot up its stuff, and it was fine. And then, of course, be a terrible killing machine. But the way I got around it was is that I said that the Dalek, because of the shock of going through the fringe pads and having all of its systems flatline like that, it caused it to have amnesia. It knew it was a creature, but it didn't know any of its history or its underpinning type thing. And it tried to work with the Fringeworthy. The biggest problem it ran into was that everybody was waiting for it to Dalek out. <laughs> and ultimately it said, fine, fine, you all die. Happy now? <laughs> so, John, what, what would it say if, if it when it flipped out? Exterminate! There you go. Exterminate! Okay. <laughs> yeah. Lots of robots, and they could be little robots, big robots. It could be just be talking toasters. <laughs> the thing in Fallout uh, New Vegas where they go to the old world blues and all the different devices inside the places you're living in have personalities mostly seriously manically wrong personalities <laughs> that was great i love that i'm reminded of talky toaster from red dwarf <laughs> i can make you some really dark toast oh you want some toast oh so you're a waffle man yeah <laughs> now if you talk about robots you also have to talk about replicants no i don't Yes, you do, because replicants are not robots. If you watch the movie, Blade Runner. I know, as I'm saying, they're not robots. They're not robots. They are artificial human, artificial beings. They're, they're, they're living. They're organic beings, but they are basically built for whatever purpose you want them to build. Heinlein, again, chases down all those ethical and moral stories in his novel Friday, which is a great story. Yes. Very good novel about uh, artificial beings. And again, not fringeworthy. Very unlikely. Well, I mean, a totally artificial being is just as likely to be fringeworthy as anything else that is uh, human and intelligent. So one in 100,000, yeah. If you have 100,000 artificial beings in the world, there's a chance that one of them is. I think that falls into the not likely category. Yeah. <laughs> and if this is the advanced campaign and you've got yourself a truckload of crystals and you can hand them out to people to carry around and be attuned, yeah. it's more likely. Or you're the Star Wars universe and you keep hatching clone troopers until you have a cadre of fringeworthy clone troopers. What are the things that you really want to be in your science fiction games that scream science fiction? Space habitats, starships, power armor, optical camouflage, super medicines, all that stuff. If you want to run a science fiction adventure, your players are going to be looking for it. So you might as well give it to them. Yeah, and uh, you need a food machine. Let it warm up, put in some raw materials, and we get pizza. Okay, you're reading different stories than I am. <laughs> the stories I read, all the food comes in little pills or cubes. Remember Traveler and the Little Furry Food Taster? And they had pizza and the Jetsons from the Food of Rakaraka cycle. I like the can when you open the can or tear open the bag and the food cooks instantly in it so you have a nice hot meal. Well, this is also the world where they solved the problem of cancer from cigarette smoking. So everyone smokes cigarettes. I mean, this is a staple of 1950s science fiction. Everyone smoked cigarettes because they cured cancer from cigarettes. Well, in Judge Dredd, the most dangerous, addictive drug in the entire world is processed sugar. Just ask any four-year-old. So you can have real science fiction or science sci-fi types of adventures in Fringeworthy. Just to make sure that you have all the parts going in the right directions. That you have the things that resonate with your players that say this is science fiction. That you have a big enough landscape that it makes sense and the, the players will be engaged. It's all about the characters 
and how they deal with these emergent technologies or these alien invasions or things like that that are going to galvanize the interests of your players. Don't forget to make the characters that are in these worlds, in these adventures, engaging and exciting to the characters. I'm sure that we're going to be talking about other things like this, possibly even something unrelated to Fringeworthy, but I can't imagine that happening until next week. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Paul. When you remove the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be having your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.